Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I am so glad. I'm doing great. Awesome, I guess is the word. Uh, we're still going through the Sermon on the Mount. We will continue to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for, for, for a while, which is, which is fine. That, that's okay. Um, today we're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, if you brought your scriptures to open up and, and follow along with us. The title is, Go the Second Mile. It'll be Matthew five thirty-eight through 42 today. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have, have given us complete understanding that we, can, that we can understand of who you are and who we are. You, everything that you've given us, Father, is sufficient for us to, to come to know you, to be in relationship with you, to, to be saved, to be reconciled to you, to be forgiven of our sins, as well as to navigate this life and this world that we live in. And so, Father, I pray that we continue to study it diligently, that we will pour through your word and, and wrestle with your word until we can understand, understand it to the point that we are, can confidently live it out and reflect you in our lives. Father, I pray that during this hour that you will continue to help us to understand what it is that you're, you're teaching us and that we would remember it and that we would apply it. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll go ahead and give you a, a little disclaimer. Seems like I've been doing that a lot lately. Um, this topic, again, is a little controversial. Um, the reason I say that is because people feel so strongly about opinions. See, that's, that's what makes something controversial versus not controversial. Is If you disagree about it, but it's no big deal, it's not controversial about it. But if you disagree about it and people get heated and animated and they tend to get angry, that... Was the, that, by nef- definition, is what makes something controversial. Um, this is something, again, that I have seen and heard and heard opinions on both sides, and people have gotten very animated about this. So all I can do is I can tell you how I see it, I can tell you how I understand it, explain why I understand it the way I do, and, and, and that's, all, that's all I can do. Um, not, not trying to be controversial in our in our sermons here lately but um i think it just turns out that jesus is quite controversial um jesus just happens to say a lot of things that people tend to disagree about and to take different sides of the fence on and and so this is this is all continuing in with that uh with that theme so all right matthew five thirty eight through 42 Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever heard anybody say that in, okay, this is one of those things where you hear people say that phrase, but then they'll either fall on one side or the other. They'll say, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But if that's the way it, it, we try to live, then everybody's going to be, you know, hurting everybody, attacking everybody, da, 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 da. I heard this I can remember one instance of somebody I really care about that's uh, passed away now. Um, loved her dearly. But she held to this verse and said, you know, this is her motto. You know, she said, I'm a, and th- her exact words, I'm an Old Testament Christian. Those were her words. <laughs> and she lived by it. And uh, she's like, I, um, I'll forgive you, but I'm going to hold a grudge, I think was her words. Uh, if you wrong me, I'm 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 going to hold a grudge against you and you and I think let me let me just as a caveat as a little dis, another disclaimer let me just say I think she was trying to to as I was a kid at the time and I wasn't the most calm kid at the time I think she was trying to say you better act right in my house I think it was one of the you know how parents do you know Santa's not going to bring you anything for Christmas knowing that's not really true maybe that was the case maybe she didn't mean she was really going to hold grudges against me but she made me think it and so I was on my my uh uh p's and q's when I was over here is that the right phrase okay I was thinking cross T's, dot the I's, P's, Q's. I was like, I don't remember how this phrase goes. I'll just try it. (laughs) 
But anyways, I, but she told me, she's, she's like, you know, if you, if you act up over here, you can't come back, da-da-da-da-da. And I, I, all, I, all I say to bring that up is the point is, as you meet people, you will come across people who hold a whole range of views about um, this idea, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's where if you do something to me, then it deserves to be done back to you. Well, where does that come from? Jesus said it. Well, it comes from a few places, at least three in the Old Testament. Let's just look at one. It comes from the Old Testament. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 20. It says, if a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor... Whether he has done, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. So this is the Mosaic Law. This is the Old Testament. This is Leviticus. This is the law. If you injure someone, then when you go to court and you stand before the judge under the Mosaic Law, the the, the penalty, if you were found guilty, the penalty was whatever injury you afflicted on that person, the same is going to be done to you. If you gouged his eye out, your penalty is your, your eye will be gouged out. If you, da 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 eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's where this phrase comes from. But see, the thing here is, this was, as Leviticus, as you find a lot in Leviticus and, and the Mosaic Law, these are instructions and laws given to the nation. And these are instructions for how the nation is to carry out its laws in its judicial process. There's still a judicial process. And it's still the nation and judges who are appointed who make decisions on what is to be done. In other words, we have laws. And we have laws that say if you, if you do such and such, then the penalty is such and such. But guess what? They have to go to court, and it's the law, it's the court system, the judicial system that has to inflict those punishments. It's not vigilanteism. And it's the same in Jesus' day when he's talking to, the, the, on, the, on the Sermon on the Mountain, when he's talking to his Jewish hearers, and they're listening to him, he's saying it's, it's the same thing. It's not vigilanteism. In other words, if somebody maliciously knocked out your tooth, got in a fight, and they knocked, punched you in the face and knocked out your tooth. According to the law, they were to be taken to the court, and then the court could decide to knock out that person's tooth. It's not for you to go find them uh, in the marketplace when they're not looking and knock out that tooth yourself. And that's where the distinction must be drawn. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dig more into that a little bit later. But there is a difference between vigilanteism, which is any wrong that I feel I have been given, I have the right to go and inflict that same harm on others. I am unbelievably thankful in this country today that that is not the law. Because there are, all you got to do is turn on the news. There are so many people in this country today who feel they have been wronged and have in their mind what the right thing to do to others in order to make things right and that's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. So this is where it comes from. But we've got to keep in mind, these were laws given to be issued by the government. So then when you go back, oh, I didn't finish, 21 and 22. Oh, that's, that's right. Let's look at the next two verses right here where it says, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. And the next two verses say, whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, but whoever kills a person is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the resident alien and the native because I am the Lord your God. So right in the context of this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he is saying this is a law. This is the law. Laws are to be carried out by judges. Laws are to be carried out by the government, not by individuals. All right, so same thing today. We jump back. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. 
On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. This is where we have to get into what tends to be controversial, where you have people on one side that are very heated about this. You have people on the other side that are very heated about this. We as Christians who want to be as diligent to the word of God as we can, how are we to navigate this? And all I can do, honestly, honestly on this, all I can do is really just tell you how I navigate this. Okay? All I can tell you is how I see this, how I understand the scriptures, how I view this, and explain it to you. Here's the thing. When I study the Word of God, if it says apples are good, we read a little bit later, apples are great. A little bit later, you read apples taste wonderful. Of course, none of this is in here. But, I mean, if you just keep on going, apples are great, apples are good, apples are wonderful. And then in another book, a little bit later, you come across a verse that says um, apples are evil. Just look at the Garden of Eden. I mean, you know, if... At some, if you come across two verses that seem to be saying contradictory things, then it's so important that before you make a decision and say, well, I like the first one better, so I'll go with apples are good. Or I like the second one better, and I'll go with apples are bad. Before you make a distinction and a decision to go with the one you like, it's for us important to say, look, am I missing something? How... Because if the Bible says it, it must be true. So if it seems to be contradictory, what is it I'm missing that make it, that's making it look contradictory, but it's actually not? How can they both be true? And so when you're studying the Scriptures and you're trying to navigate life and you're trying to live by the Scriptures, and then you have verses that seem to tell you live this way, and then it says to t- tell you to live this way, how do you reconcile those so that you understand how I can live both ways so that they're both true? And that's honestly what we have to do here. Jesus is saying, look, you've heard eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, turn the other to him also. What you have is this idea um, on the one side that Jesus was a complete and total pacifist. So it doesn't, ma- doesn't matter what anybody does. If they slap you, you're to just let them slap you. If they punch you, you're to let them punch you. If they kick you, you're to let them kick you. If they stab you, you're to let them stab you. If they shoot you, you're to let them shoot you. If they're going to shoot your kids, you should just let them shoot your kids. I'm sorry, but at some point we've gone too far. I disagree. At some point in the line, we've crossed the line. That, that's my opinion. Now, we're going to get to why that's my opinion. But some people don't feel there is a line. I've, I have had a conversation with one particular person who were talking about murder, and they said, it doesn't matter the case, it does not matter the scenario, period. There is no scenario. If you kill someone, it's murder, plain and simple. It's murder, period. You should never kill another person regardless of the circumstance. Some people hold those views and are very adamant about those views. Others will hold to the opposite side, completely other end, and say, you know what? If, if they're your enemy, then it is justified to go to war. If they're your enemy, it is justified to take them out because all they're doing is making the world a worse place and all I'm trying to do is make the world a better place. Neither of these are true. These are completely opposite of what the Scripture teaches. Because, see, what happens is we'll take one verse and we'll, if we just take that one verse, then we can build a whole framework of how to live life off that one verse. But we've got, we got to have a framework that matches all the verses, that matches all the Scriptures. And so here we have this problem. And I know I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. I hope, you don't, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. This is an English translation of the Scriptures. This is just as good as any other translation of the Scriptures. I don't care what you say. I'll fight you tooth and nail and say that. I will say that this Christian Standard Bible is just as good as the King James. It's just as good as the New American Standard. It's just as good as the English Standard. It's just as good as a Swahili version. It's just as good as a French version or a German version. They're all sufficient. They're all sufficient to bring you to Christ and to teach you about God, to teach you about yourself. They're good. They're good, good as gold, if you ask me. But... I also, at the same time, hold the view that the original manuscripts were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And what was written in Greek 
supersedes how we translate it today. It, it does. What I mean by that is, this is efficient. There's nothing wrong with this. But if a translator makes an error, and this does not match the Greek ancient manuscripts that we have, the Greek that we have, if it doesn't match, I will never pick the English over the Greek. Ever. I will always pick the Greek over the English. Period. So what happens? Well, sometimes you read one English translation, then you'll read another English translation, and they seem to to say two different things. Why? Because the translator has to try their best to translate what they read in the Greek to English so that we can understand it. Sometimes they interpret it two different ways. But I will tell you, of all the times that the English translations differ on interpretations, they are not salvation matters. None of them. None of them. None of, the, none of the differences in translations, none of them will, if you believe one, you'll be saved. If you believe the other, you'll be lost. None of them. It's just things like this. Right here it says, don't resist an evildoer. Now this, in the Greek, the word resist is enthistomy. Okay? Enthistomy. This is the word resist. Now what do we think when we hear Resist. Most of us think resist arrest. I mean, that's the first thing that pops in your mind when you think resist. We think resist when somebody comes at us and attacks us. Resist means to try to stop them. Or, or I mean, that, that's, that's what we think, right? To try to stop them. So in other words, if they come at you with a knife and you try to stop them, that's resisting. That, okay, that's where, we have, that's where we get into this, okay? Resist and these to me, The Greek word literally means to stand against. Okay? To stand against. This is the idea. You can say resist as long as you understand resist meaning to struggle back. Okay? Not to defense, but to struggle back against. To stand back against. To oppose. This word means to stand against or to oppose. It says, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, other, the other to him also. If someone slaps you on the cheek, are you in danger of death? No. A slap on the cheek is what? It's an insult. It's an insult. If we're going to be honest with the scriptures, we have to be honest with the context. The context here is insult. That's the context. If someone insults you in public, don't don't oppose them. Don't resist, meaning don't, don't insult back, don't fight back, don't argue back. You know what? That's hard for us to do. You know why? Because of pride. That's why. Because of pride. Now, you insult my wife, and you won't see me abide by this. But you insult me, I'll let it go off my back all day long. Okay? We won't get into that, whether that's right or wrong. We can have that private conversation. But my point is, you insult me, I'll let it slide off my shoulder, brush it off, no skin off my back, no problem, all day long. Now, is it going to upset me? Yes. Is it going to hurt me? Yes. But am I going to fight you back and get ugly back and start insulting you back? Not going to happen. We, in order to live this way, we have to let go of our pride. Because when we get insulted, our pride swells up and says, oh no, you don't talk to me that way. You don't insult me like that. I got a million things I've been biting my tongue about that I've been wanting to say to you, and now you've given me the perfect opportunity now that you've done insulted me, here it comes. We got to let go of that. We got to let go of our pride. Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn them the other cheek also. Don't slap them back. Now, that's the context, but we're going to get more than just this context. We're going to dive deeper. Now, here's the thing. Jesus and disciples, you say, well, okay. But if you look at Jesus and the disciples, Jesus did not fight back when they came to get him. Peter pulled his sword out and cut off the ear off of one of the guys coming to get him. And Jesus rebuked Peter, told him to put his sword away. And then Jesus went and healed the guy. Jesus didn't fight back. When they beat him and flogged him, he didn't fight back. 
when they nailed him to a cross, he didn't fight back. But let's keep this in context because I'm going to get to the details of why. When Jesus rebuked Peter and told him to put his sword back, he said, am I not to drink the cup my father has in store for me? I've told you, Peter, he didn't say it this way, but let's just paraphrase for a second. He had already told Peter three times, including that night, he would be handed over and crucified and they were coming to get him that night. He told Peter three times, all the disciples, three times, I'm going to be handed over and they're going to kill me. I'm going to be crucified. And then that night at the Lord's Supper, he said, this very night, I'm going to betray, be betrayed into their hands. This night. So he had told them, I've got to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give my life. But then you say, okay, well, if we take Jesus as the exception and say we understand why he didn't fight back, we understand why he didn't resist, we understand because he had to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but that's not true for any of the apostles. None of them had to be an atoning sacrifice for anybody's sins. But they all died a martyr's death as well. So how can you say Jesus is not talking about people trying to kill or or harm you How can you say that when we look at the apostles' life and we see that they all died a martyr's death as well? And what I'm going to say, how do I understand these scriptures and how do I stand on this? My understanding of the scriptures is because they died at the hands of the government and the scriptures teach, whether you you agree or disagree or not, the scriptures teach that the government is ordained by God and you cannot raise your hand against it. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, I'm, I'm just saying. That's how I understand the scriptures. Let's look at it. When David, when an Amalekite came to David and said that he had killed Saul, who was the king at the time, David questioned him, how is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, the king was the Lord's anointed one. And you say, well, that was Israel and he was anointed by Samuel. And therefore, that doesn't really count about our governments today because he really was the anointed king of Israel by God. Okay, I'll give you that, but let's keep it in mind. It's still here. Let's look at it and we'll, we'll move on. David then summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, Your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. In other words, the penalty for raising your hand and killing the Lord's anointed was death. That was the penalty in the Old Testament. Move forward to the New Testament. We jump to Paul in Acts. Paul is before the Sanhedrin. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused of the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Now, can you see Paul's attitude here? He literally said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That wasn't polite or nice or friendly. Or, I mean, all we can take this as he was angry and he was, and that was literally in Jesus' day, that was what was called a curse. You had blessings, you had cursings. That was a curse. God will strike you. That was a curse by Paul. Then those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? And look at Paul's response. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You see how his attitude changed? His attitude flipped 180 when he realized this was God's anointed. You say, again, that's Israel. That's a high priest. Maybe they were anointed. What about, what about us? What about you know, our president? Can I, can I say uh, evil things about our president? Our president is not anointed by God, you say. Well, Paul addresses that too. Let's see. Did I skip it? Peter. Let's, uh, no, 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 no. Paul, uh, Romans 12, 9 through 13. Something's wrong with my slides. 
Okay. All right. Paul says, Paul says to the Romans, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal, for be fervent in the Spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, and persistent in prayer. I didn't mean to include all this. Share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, instead associate with the humble, do not be wise in your own estimation, do not repay anyone evil for evil, give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Friends, do not avenge yourselves, instead leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord." But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. All right, so Paul just goes on. I went ahead and just, I didn't mean to put this first part in there, but I went ahead and read it because that's relevant to what we're talking about. Don't curse anyone. Don't repay evil with good. What he's saying is if someone does evil to you, don't go back and pay evil back to them. It's a retaliation. It's a vengeance. It's a retaliation. It doesn't mean don't defend yourself. It means don't go back after them. If somebody did something to you, don't go and try to seek justice yourself. Do you see the distinction there? He says, Let everyone submit to governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. If you try to say, well, again, he's talking about the Sanhedrin. He's talking about the Jewish authority. He's talking about the rules set up under the Mosaic Covenant. He's not talking about Rome, the evil emperor. He's not talking about the pagan emperor who was killing Christians. He's not talking about any pagan authorities. He's talking about God's Jewish law, Sanhedrin priest authority. I'm sorry, but that's not, that's not true. He is literally talking about all authorities. And as hard as I to understand it, I can't even comprehend it. He's still, he's talking about Kim Jong-un. He's talking about North Korea. He's talking about all authority has governing authority and they wouldn't have authority except from God. Now, Ask me how, and I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I can't answer all your questions. I don't really know how that works. All I have to do is just accept it until I do understand it. Right now, I just have to accept it. How do I know he's not just talking about Jewish authorities? He goes on. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these things. Pay your obligations. And you're all saying, like, why couldn't you skip these verses? You know? no. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. That's what the Bible says. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. Dear friends, I urge you as strength... Oh, man. All right, he talks about taxes and authorities. Here we're talking about to the Roman government. This was the big issue of the day. Do we need to pay taxes to Rome? And he's like, yes, to pay taxes to Rome. You say, yeah, but, but he doesn't specifically say Rome. And that's how people try to wiggle their way out of stuff. He didn't specifically say Rome. Maybe he's just talking about taxes to the Jewish authorities, to the temple. Okay, but let's keep going because the, the whole Bible has to be taken in total. First Peter, uh, First Peter 2, 11 through 17 says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human, not godly, human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor 
as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. God taught us you must honor even pagan emperors. Because even pagan emperors, you have to submit to even them because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. Jesus commands you to submit to the government. Jesus commands you to submit to the emperor, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil. Jesus taught you must obey, you must, com- you must submit to even pagan authorities. You must honor them. Now, we see with James and John, we see with diff- the apostles that if the authorities tell you to do something against Christ, you don't obey them, you obey Christ. Okay? If they tell you to renounce Christ, you don't renounce Christ. You obey God. But as long as you're obeying God, then you must submit to your governing authorities. You can't fight back. You can't resist. You can't wage war against them. So what do we see the apostles do? They all die at the hands of the government. What do we see Jesus do? He dies at the hands of the government. It's the kings and the governors and the emperor who commands their deaths. They don't fight back against the government. That's how I see this. That's how I understand this. So, this is why I believe Jesus and the disciples, they died at the hands of Jewish and Roman governments by not fighting back. But at the same time, that harmonizes with Jesus who told his disciples, you may not know this, he told his disciples on the night that he was going to be betrayed to go and sell their cloak and buy swords. Did you know that? Let's look at it. He said, for it is God's will... Oh, wait, you guys skip, because I went backwards. Luke 22, 35 to 38 says, He also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now, whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag, and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. Do you know that in Jewish law, and in the scriptures, I don't know if I threw that one in there or not, um, but in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, it says that if, if you take a man's coat for collateral, if you take his outer coat for collateral that he's going to pay you for something or do whatever, it said you must return his coat before sunset. It said, what else will he sleep in to keep him warm? And he will cry out to me and I will hold you guilty if you don't. It was understand, understood as Jewish law that you could not take a man's coat. That you had to give it back to him for him to sleep in. It was a big deal to take a man's coat. We don't think a big deal anymore because we got, you know, I got another coat. I got a warm house. I got all this stuff. This is not the context of Jesus' hearers. Jesus said, your coat, which is necessary for survival at night. It's necessary to survive the cold nights. Your coat, which is necessary for survival. He said, if you don't have a sword, you need to sell that thing and you need to go buy you one. That's what he said. But let's continue reading. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless. Yet what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. Remember when I was telling you about the translation? The translators have to write it so that it understands, so you can understand it. 
Here's the thing, and this is how I understand it, so all I can do is just tell you how I understand it. That is enough. What's it mean when your parents say that's enough? You better knock it off. You better quit it right now. Is that what it meant 2,000 years ago? Who could honestly say yes? Who can honestly say that is enough? Honestly was a phrase and lingo that meant, hey, stop that. Can you honestly say that? No, you can't. Because we don't know that that was a common phrase 2,000 years ago, enough to put an exclamation point behind it and say, that's enough. What does it actually say? What does the Greek actually say? It says, estin hikonon. Estin means it is. Hikonon means, you ready? Bidag means this. Number one definition, it means sufficient in degree. It means translated as sufficient, adequate, large enough. Okay? He, so what he said is, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's adequate. It's large enough. That's literally what he said in the Greek. The second definition, to meeting a standard, is translated as fit, appropriate, competent, qualified, able. Is that what he said? It, it's fit, it's competent, it's appropriate, it's adequate. Third definition, to being large in extent or degree, translated as considerable. It's considerable. Fourth definition, in lo- relatively large numbers, many, quite a few. It's many, it's quite a few. You see how translators have to take, what does it mean? How do I translate it? Well, I wouldn't translate it as it's, it's many, it's quite a few. You could, but two, I wouldn't say two is many or two is quite a few. But it means sufficient, large enough, appropriate, being large and extended to degree. In other words, what Jesus said when they said, look, here's two swords, he said that's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's enough. It's appropriate. It's adequate. That's literally what he said. But when we translate this, we say, well, that can't be what he meant. So what he meant must be it's enough. Like we say it's enough. That's enough of that. And so you see that come across in translations. If you look at, um, this is the King James Version, and they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords, and he said unto them, it is enough. Or if you look at New American Standard, they said, Lord, look here, here are two swords, and he said to them, it is enough. Here's the problem. If you say, which I don't, if you say that what that means is it's enough, meaning knock it off. If that's what you say, you, you put yourself with some problems that you have to answer. And here are, the, here are the problems. Because what you could do is you could look back and you can say, you can look back and say, Jesus said in the context, and for I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless. If you take that stance, which many, many, many do, that what Jesus is saying, go by sword so that... M- so that the prophecy will be fulfilled that I was counted among the lawless, so that you will be lawless. That's what one, one side says. It's right there. It's in the context. He's saying, go by swords, so that the prophecy would be fulfilled that I will be counted among the lawless. In other words, buying swords will make you lawless. <clears throat> if that's your stance, which I completely disagree, <clears throat> what were Jesus' disciples after three years doing with two swords in the upper room? If that's true, that Jesus wants his disciples to be considered lawless, so he wants them to go by sword so that they would be considered lawless, which I just don't think that's at all what he's trying to say, why, after three years, did he still permit his disciples to have swords? Why, in three years' time, did he not say to them, do away with your swords? You can't have swords if you're my disciples. Why did he never tell them that? But yet in the upper room, there they are, they have them with them. In the garden, Peter brought his along with him. Here's what's saying. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, by the way, everybody is going to consider you lawless for being my disciples. And they're coming after you. And they're going to try to kill you. So if you don't have a coat, coat's not your big worry right now. You better get a sword. That's how I understand it. 
Why? Because that's a completely legitimate way to understand this. When they said, hey, we got two. And he said, that's sufficient. That's enough. That's adequate. Why? Because if I understand it that way, it completely harmonizes with the fact that he has allowed his disciples to have swords with them in the upper room for three years, and he's never rebuked them and never told them to do away with their swords. It all goes together. It all fits together. It makes sense. That he taught them not to retaliate, not to go back, not to stand against, not to oppose, not to return evil for evil. But if some evil person tries to kill you, you should defend yourself. And guess what? Jesus said, by the way, they're coming after you. They're coming after you. So if you don't have a sword, I'm about to go. I can't, stand, I can't stick around to protect you anymore. I'm about to be out of here. If you don't have a sword, sell your coat, buy you a sword, because they're coming after you. <clears throat> that's how I understand it. And that's how I understand it to match what's taught in the Old Testament as well as what's in the New Testament. Because God, I've said it many times before, God isn't one way in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament and you say, you know what? I changed my mind. This is how I used to feel. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel this way now. God doesn't do that. If that's how he felt in the Old Testament, that's how he feels now. He doesn't change how he feels about right and wrong, about what's okay and what's not okay. So we look. All right, I'll just, let's keep going. The difference is whether or not you use those swords against the government who's coming after you or whether or not you use those swords against some evil person who's trying to kill you. That's where I believe the difference is. Why? Because the government is anointed by God and the evil person trying to attack you and your family is not. That's where I draw the line. That's how I understand this. And then if you look, if we, uh, if we look back at Exodus 22, we see the same idea. Exodus 22, 2 and 3 says, If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. This was the law. This is how God felt. God gave this law. This wasn't man's law who came up with it and God said, okay, I agree. God, this was God's idea. God gave this law. Somebody breaks into your house at night and you kill them, you're not guilty of bloodshed, according to God. But if this happens after sunrise, when you can see the offender coming in, the thief, because that's the context, remember? Number two is a thief, not a murderer, not a killer, not, not somebody trying to, not a rapist, a thief. If a thief comes into your home at night and you beat him to death, you're not guilty of murder in God's sight. No punishment. But if the thief comes in at, after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. Why? Because, again, God is not okay with you murdering someone because of stealing something from you. But a thief is not the same as somebody who's trying to kill you. There's a difference there. Now, this was also back in the day when you actually had to go into hand-to-hand combat. At night, you didn't know what this person was. You didn't know if this person had a weapon. You didn't know if this person was armed or a weapon. It's dark. You don't know. You just know somebody's in your house who shouldn't be in your house, and you have to take it from the safe perspective of you have to, you have to kill them if you want to guarantee that you and your family will be safe because you don't know. And God said, in that case, I will not hold you accountable because you didn't know. But if someone comes in during the day and they're not armed, God said you're not to kill them. Keep in mind, this was back in the day when you knew if they were armed because they had a big club or they had a sword and you had to go into hand-to-hand combat with this person. Not like today. Today, in a second and a half, somebody can pull a gun and shoot you and you're dead. Second and a half. That's it. They don't, you don't have to see a, a gun on them. And then by the time you do see the gun, you're dead. That's it. So I will draw that distinction. It is not the same then as it is today. So how you navigate that in your personal life, that's up to you. But what I'm trying to tell you is that God, looking at the context, says in order to protect your life and your family's life, I will not hold you guilty of killing that person even if they were just a thief unarmed if it was at night because you didn't know. God's saying, I'm not going to hold you guilty. 
Because God said it was okay for you to protect your life and your family's life. Had God not been okay with it, he would not have said this. He would have said, if a thief breaks into your home at night and you kill him, you're guilty of bloodshed. He would have said that. Just like he said right here, if it's after sunrise and you see it's a thief and you kill him, you're guilty of bloodshed. If God was not okay with it, he would have said, you're guilty of bloodshed. But he didn't. He said, no one is guilty. God is okay with you defending your life and the life of those that you love against an evil person. He is okay with that. That's what he said. And to say that he's not anymore means he changed his mind on how he feels about that. And the burden is on you to prove that, not on me to disprove it. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. You say, well, that was the Mosaic law. We don't live under the Mosaic law. I grant you that. I will grant you that. We don't live under the Mosaic law. But this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. It says, however, you must not eat meat with the lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. Do you realize that this was way before the Mosaic law? God said, if someone kills another person, then you are to take their life because, they, because people are made in God's image. Why? So they don't kill another person. God is okay with taking the life of a person who has killed someone because people are made in his image and he's not okay with allowing that person to continue going around and killing more people. He's not okay with that. This is pre-Mosaic law, so this applies whether you're under the laws of Israel or not under the laws of Israel, this still applies. And my whole point of what I'm trying to tell you is God's heart has not changed. His heart has not changed. Jesus, when he said, don't resist an evil person or don't stand against or fight back against or retaliate against an evil person for striking you on the cheek, Jesus is talking about being insulted. He's not talking about you being killed or your loved ones being killed by an evil person. God said from the very beginning, if someone goes to kill you, if someone kills a person, that they are to be killed, period. If someone attempts to kill you, you can, you can fight them back, you can kill them back to protect your life and the life of those you love. Even if they weren't trying to kill you, if you don't know and you can't make the decision because they broke into your house at night and you don't know if they're armed and you kill them, I'm still not going to hold you accountable because you were trying to protect the life of you, yourself and the life of those you loved and they came in at night so there was no way for you to know if they were armed or not. I'm not going to hold you guilty. You cannot then tell me that God is not okay under any circumstances with you protecting your life or the life of the ones you love. I don't see that in the scriptures. And I'm not going to ignore half the Bible to just hold on to one or two verses that I can make my case with that verse. Now, I also, I told you already, this is how they view it. They view it as you can't resist anybody, period. And he told Jesus to go by swords because he wanted a prophecy fulfilled that he would be counted among the lawless, which means if they had swords, they would be lawless. So he wanted them to be lawless. I told you that view. I'm just telling you as your pastor, I don't believe that's true. I don't, I don't believe that's what it says. I don't believe that's how I understand it. And I explained to you, this is how I understand it. So he's telling them, you're not to fight the government. You're not to retaliate for insults. But it it finishes up, verses 40 and 42. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So now we've moved from insults to being taken advantage of. And I'll try to wrap up real quick because I took a long time on that but here's this idea that Jesus is teaching if somebody and let's just look at the the supporting verses on this first Corinthians 6 1 through 11 if any of you has a dispute against another how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints or don't you know that the saints will judge the world and if the world is judged by you you are are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases don't you know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? 
I say this to your shame. Can it be that there, are not, there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers, as it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. <clears throat> what he's saying here. I know I went fast and we don't have time to go slow. It says you should try and have your matters arbitrated by godly leaders that both parties will submit to and will who judge, and who will judge impartially. This is where the idea of as a Christian it's, it's a sin to sue somebody. You know where you, you hear that? I know, I know y'all have heard that. It's wrong to sue people. This is where that comes from, 1 Corinthians. Because what's happening is he is rebuking the people for going to Roman courts, Roman courts, to have their matters disputed and judged as Christians. And he's rebuking them and saying, Whoa, are there not any godly members in your church that can judge between a matter and help resolve an issue without having to go to pagan, to pagan judges? Can you not have this resolved by a godly person? Of someone who, who holds to impartiality and the truthfulness of God's word and right and wrong? Can you not settle your disputes by somebody in your church? He says, but if an unbeliever wants to take advantage of you, now this is between believers. He says, as believers, you shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't be going this far. You shouldn't be taking each other to court. But even if you do, he said, you fail if you do, because why not just be cheated? Why not just be taken advantage of? And that's the verse a lot of people have trouble with. Why not just be taken advantage of? Why not just be cheated? You know why we struggle with that? It's the same as the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, look, I've done everything right. And he said, yeah, but you lack one thing. Go sell all your possessions and come follow me. And he left, and he left sad because he had so many possessions. That's why we struggle with this. Why not be taken advantage of? Why not be cheated? Because we have accumulated so much material wealth for ourselves that we're not willing to let it go. We're not willing to let it go. If a believer comes to you, you should be able to settle this in, in a church, which means the church, the church, the leaders of the church who should settle, should settle it rightly and justly and say, look, if you've wronged them, you owe them. It should be settled justly. But if an unbeliever who's not willing to submit to a church leader comes to you, he's saying, if an unbeliever wants to take advantage of you, then you should just let them take advantage of you. Now, of course, there's always a line. There's always a line because our biggest problem, like I said, our biggest problem is our accumulation of wealth to the point that we aren't willing to part with it. But while Jesus is not, it is teaching us to not to store up riches for ourselves on earth, but to give generously to everyone. Now you are not willing, not to willingly give up your stuff to the point that you no longer can provide for yourself or your family. There's the line. If somebody's trying to take advantage of you, Jesus said, look, let them take advantage of you. You say, well, do you know how much this cost me? I would imagine Jesus' response is, why did you waste all that money on that thing then? That would probably be Jesus' response. I can't afford to let this go because I spent so much on it. And Jesus would say, why did you spend so much on it? But here's the thing. You cannot give up everything to the point that you can't provide for your own, you, yourself and your family. If they, say, if they come to you and say, I want your house, you can't just give me your house. You say, well, well, how do you make that distinction? Well, by other scriptures. 1 Timothy 5, 7, and 8. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus said, look, if you don't provide for your own family and your own household, in, in God's sight, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's harsh. That's harsh. But that's what he said. So what does that mean? It says it means you better do everything you can to provide for yourself and your household and your family. 
And just because somebody's angry with you and comes up and says, well, I want your house and your car and everything you own, you have to say, look, I want to be generous to you. I want to give to you. I want to help you because you feel like I've wronged you. Even if I haven't wronged you, you do. I want to be generous because Jesus taught me to be generous. Jesus taught me not to be stingy. He said not to cling to my material things. But I'm telling you, I can't give you my house and I can't give you my car and I can't give you my livelihood because I got a family that I got to provide for. And God said, if I don't provide for them, then I'm worse than you. That's the response. Why? Because we don't take one verse and say, okay, make every life decision based off this one verse. No, we take the whole entirety of Scripture and we say we live by the entirety of Scripture to the best that we can. And we live in a fallen world and it's going to be difficult to make decisions sometimes, but we just got to live by the best we can. So I'm going to tell you as your pastor, I love you, but I'm going to tell you right now, if somebody comes to me and thinks that I've wronged them, I want to be generous and I want to give and I want to help and I want to reconcile because I want to be an image of Christ to that person. But I'm not going to sacrifice the, the well-being of my family for that person. I'm not going to do it. And I want to protect people. I don't want violence. I don't want violence coming to my door. But if somebody comes in my house at night and I know that they could in a moment, second, pull out a gun and shoot me or my wife, it's going to be them first. And you say, as a pastor, how can you hold that? Because that is what I see from the Scripture. Now, if the government comes to my door, I'm not going to get in a no-shooting match. Not going to happen. If one lone officer comes to my door, I will not retaliate. But if 20 evil people come barging down my door, I will protect my wife, life and limb. And that's how I view the scriptures. That's how I reconcile the scriptures. Now, if you want to insult me, if they want to cast shade at me, if they want to call me bad names and, 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 and try to ruin my reputation, if, if they want to get online and just try to make everybody hate me, that's fine. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to cat, throw names their way. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to love them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to pray for them. But I'm not going to sacrifice the well-being and the protection of my family and my loved ones because some evil person wants to come in without the authority of the government and commit evil. Not going to happen. Just look at this church. Sutherland Springs. I'll close on this. Sutherland Springs. Evil man. Not by the authority of the government. Evil man darkens the doors of a small church this size with about 50 members, goes in, Sutherland Springs, Texas, wounds 20, kills 26, including 10 women, 7 men, 7 girls, 1 boy, and an unborn child. Nine of those were children. Nine were children. Evil man, no authority by the government, comes in and starts shooting the church. Let me tell you something. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he did not mean to lay down and let that man shoot all those kids. I promise you that. And if someone in that church had been armed and had returned fire and saved those kids, God would not hold him guilty of murder. I promise you that. And that's how I see the scriptures. And that's how I see to navigate through this world we live in. And if, if I change my mind one day, I promise you, I am not above standing up here and telling you I changed, I, this is what I believed and I changed my mind. I'm telling you, I don't. But I, I, don't, I can't fathom changing my mind on this topic because of the sense of God's heart of justice and his love and his care and provision and what I've read in the scriptures about how to how to fight against evil and to defend against evil, but yet not to retaliate against insults. Set your pride aside. Don't set your protection of the innocent aside. Plain and simple. That's how I'm going to navigate my life, and I pray that's how you'll navigate your life. Set your pride aside 
but do not set the protection of the innocent aside. I love y'all. Who knew God's word could be so controversial? But I'm telling you, we are sinful people who get led astray because an enemy is after us and he's trying to convince us that God is lying or not good or to just let evil just have its heyday and, and, and don't do anything God's... I, I just, I, we have an enemy that's trying to destroy the church. And in Sutherland Springs, I hate to say it, but it did. It destroyed that local church. They had a 50 member, membership of 50 people, and 46 were shot. 26 did, including the pastor's, I think, 12-year-old daughter. pastor wasn't there that day, but his family was, and, and, and some of them died. His 12-year-old daughter, dead. It destroyed that church. I don't want to see that happen here. I don't want to see that happen anywhere ever again. But it's this mindset that trying to stop evil people at potential risk of killing them is wrong, so we therefore should not do it. I disagree, and I believe it's that mindset that fuels these type of atrocities. And you say, well, the church is no place for guns. Well, the church is no place for mass shootings either. Can we say that? The church is no place for guns. Well, then why did Jesus' disciples have swords at the upper room? Why did Jesus for three and three and a half years never tell them to get, put them away? I don't want to feed into this narrative that causes more innocent life to be taken when it doesn't, when I don't think that God wants it to happen. I'm, I'm convinced God did not want all those kids to die. He did not want all those people to die. And I am convinced if somebody had been armed, they, most of them probably would not have. All right, I love y'all. I've kept y'all way over, but I love y'all. And I hope you can accept that. As I love you, and <laughs> I want the best for you, and I want the best for the church, and I want the best for the kingdom of God. <sighs> Some of these things get tricky to navigate, but we just got to... And, 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 if, and if you disagree with me, can I just say this? Because there's people listening online, there's people watching. I have no idea who's going to hear this message. If you disagree with me, I'm okay with you disagreeing with me. I encourage you to live by what you are convinced of. If you're convinced it's wrong, you need to live by that. Because I'm not going to be there beside you on Judgment Day. If you're standing before God and God said, why'd you do this? And he says, Pastor Long told me I should. No, I'm not going to be there. You must live what you are convinced the Scripture is true, and you can't be biased towards the Scripture to, make it, to hold on to the parts you want to be true. Because I'm telling you, I encourage you to live that way because that's exactly how I live. I live based off what I'm convinced is true in the Scriptures, and I make decisions based off what I believe to be true to the Scriptures, whether I want it to be true or don't want it to be true. That's how I live, and I encourage you to do the same, even if we fall on different sides of the fence. So no upset feelings coming from my, my way. All I can do is just tell you how I see it. All right, I love you all. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, I pray. I know that protection is not the most important thing. The most important thing is sharing the gospel, whether we're protected or not. To share the gospel with, and, and to take the message of life to people, whether it costs us our life or not. But, Father, I do pray for protection. I do pray for the protection of this church and the people in it and the kids. Father, I do pray for protection against evil. Father, you taught us to. You taught us to, protect, to pray to protect us against evil. And so, Father, I pray that you also give us clarity of mind on how to navigate your scriptures and understand them so that we can live them out in context of our lives, that we can honor you, that we can do what you want us to do, live the way you want us to live. And, Father, we, we, we want to so bad. Father, we need you to give us clear understanding and courage to live it out. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our last song? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I love you and Father, I thank you.
Thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your, your presence, for your protection, your omniscience. Father, thank you for life. Thank you for giving us existence. Father, thank you for giving us this church and bringing us together. Father, help us to, to live our lives in honoring, honoring you with everything that we say and do. To lay our pride aside so that we, we do not retaliate against those who insult us. Father, that we would also be generous in our giving to others. That we would not be stingy, but that we would try to give to others and help others and to lift them up and, and to, to give without ex- expecting anything in return. Father, help us to move your kingdom forward. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.